0: We study the suffering of Christ in the finished work of our Lord Jesus for our salvation. We come to that statement in the creed, he descended into hell. We confess together the truth of that from God's word. What does God's word teach about Jesus being in the pit of hell? Question and answer 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Page 879 in the back of your songbooks, page 879. Jesus' experience of Sheol or descent into Sheol on the cross. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain and terror of soul on the cross but also earlier has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Now let's go in our Bibles to Matthew 26 Matthew 26, page 989. We read something of the Lord's suffering there. Hard for us to understand the depths of it, but certainly the Lord understood the depths of it. Page 989, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. After the Last Supper... Jesus is heading out to the garden of Gethsemane and in a few moments or an hour or so, he'll be arrested and then tried and crucified. Then, verse 36, Jesus went with them, with his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, it would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word and may he build our faith by it. Strengthen us in our hope. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you may recall a couple of weeks ago I referenced the 1981 public broadcasting service documentary called The Christians. Not done by Christians. And yet, this is what they acknowledge. Remember about the Christian faith Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. How true. The only religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. And we continue to study the suffering and degradation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about that in his suffering, condemnation, crucifixion, and death. Now we really revisit all of that again under he descended into hell to understand what the meaning of all that was, what was really happening. And so as we look at the theme, he descended into hell, we want to see, first of all, an old controversy about the meaning of this line in the creed, an old controversy, and our good confession, and thirdly, our profound comfort, the profound comfort of this truth, Jesus descended into hell. First, then, an old controversy. Should we say this line in the creed, he descended into hell? There are a few churches who reject it. But it's been part of the creed for about 1,600 years now. It's been affirmed by the great majority of church leaders in the early church, the church of the Middle Ages, by the Reformers, and by the church even to the present age. But the question is, what does it mean and is it biblical? Is it biblical? Because if it's not, no matter How many churches confess this? We should not. And if it is biblical, we should recite it with confidence and gladness of what our Lord has done for us. He descended into hell. Now, it's confusing because of language differences. In the early church, it was Greek. He descended into Hades. And then when it got translated into Latin, it was he descended into the inferno. And then it got translated into English, he descended into hell. But all these words, Hades, the inferno, and hell are really translations of an Old Testament word, Sheol. And this is where things get a little bit difficult Because the word sheol in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, has more than one meaning. It's got a broad range of meanings. On the one hand, sheol can mean the grave. Just that, the grave. But a second meaning is the state of death. Body and soul are torn apart in the intermediate state, and the body goes in the grave and the soul goes either into a place of suffering in the intermediate state, if you were an unbeliever, or paradise, if you're a believer, soul and body torn apart, state of death, Hades. Or Sheol can mean eternal punishment, the place of eternal punishment, the Gehenna, the lake of burning sulfur, the lake of fire, Hellfire. And so the statement he descended into hell, Hades, the inferno, is interpreted in all three ways. Some say it just means he entered the grave. Well, it doesn't really add a lot. He suffered, was crucified, died, buried, he entered the grave. Others understand it to mean the state of death, the realm of death, the intermediate state. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into Hades, the realm of death, the state of separation after he died, separation of soul from body. Well, and that would add more to the creed to say that. And that's the view that we have in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Let me read question and answer 50 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. How did Christ suffer humiliation after his death? Answer, Christ suffered humiliation after his death by being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which is expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So the state of death, intermediate state, body and soul torn apart. But there's another meaning of Sheol, hell, the eternal punishment. And others understand the creed. He descended into hell to mean he descended into a state of real, literal hell, eternal punishment of body and soul. And so even though we can take it in any one of these three senses and be faithful to Scripture, Sheol, I believe Sinclair Ferguson says it well when he says that this third sense, all three senses are true, is most meaningful because it adds clarity. It adds really the meaning of he suffered, crucified, was crucified, died. Because there are a lot of Christians who suffer A lot of Christians have been crucified and died. But to descend into a state of true and real and full hell in those is unique to Christ. That really adds the meaning and the tone and the texture to what we've said before. So he says, let's not drop this. It really adds something important and we really lose something big if we let go of this. It means in all his suffering, he descended into a state of hell. Now, we got to be careful here because some have misinterpreted that too. They say he descended into a state of hell after he died. So that when he died, his soul went to Gehenna, the lake of burning fire. different views of what he did during those three days between his his death and his resurrection. No. Because in the Bible, to descend to Sheol is not necessarily a physical place where you go. Often it's a state of darkness that the psalmist is in. Like, for example, Psalm 116, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish when I was brought low, when I descended. He saved me. Or Psalm 88. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Well, he's still alive, David is, referring to Christ. He's still alive. But he's in the depths of the pit. He's in the regions dark and deep. He descended into a very dark place. We still speak about anguish that way he's in a very dark place she's in a very dark place and it's that reality of sheol spoken of in scripture that came upon Jesus not after he died but before before because when he died what happened father into your hands i commit my spirit he went to heaven his body went in the ground he went to heaven Or he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. No, this came, this Sheol, these pangs of hell, the depths of the pit, the regions dark and deep came upon him on the cross. He descended into that dark place during all his suffering, but especially at its end on the cross. As one writer puts it, At the birth of the Son of God, there was a brightness at midnight. Think of the angels singing, the light shining. At the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's realize that the Sheol Jesus experienced is at all three levels, the grave, death, separation of body and soul, and pits dark and deep. The anguish of Sheol, the suffering under God's wrath while he was still alive, and all of that came upon him in his suffering, and crucifixion, and death. So let's say it with confidence. He descended into hell. And as with all things, we have to understand its proper meaning. And We should confess it not only with confidence, but with delight, that when all hell broke loose on our Savior, on the cross, but also earlier, what was Jesus doing? He was taking our place. He was suffering unspeakable anguish, terror, and pain of soul for me to deliver me from hellish anguish and torment. And that's what we see secondly. That's our good confession. That's what he was doing. And the pangs of Sheol came upon him. And he said, oh, my soul, why are you grieving? And the enemies are saying, where's your God? Because God was gone from him. God's face was turned away from him. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you can see that hellish anguish already before he's on the cross and he's in the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, you know what that means? oil press, oil press. That's where they tread upon the olives to squeeze out the olive oil. Well, that's where God was squeezing the life out of his son by trampling on him in the oil press. The oil press of his wrath. It's a picture often used in both the Old and the New Testament about God's vengeance compared to an oil press or a wine press. For example... Isaiah 63, God says, I trod the peoples now the nations in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood was spattered all over my garments and stained all my apparel. Then Lamentation says, God does that to his own people, Judah, too. The Lord has trodden, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. He stomps on them, squishes the life out of them because of his wrath. But now the Lord Jesus enters the press of God's wrath to be squished, to be destroyed under the wrath of God. And that's the pain and weight and sorrow that's so heavy on Jesus in the garden. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Not just my body is an incredible Incredible agony, my soul. Remain here and watch with me. I I just can't be by myself right now. And then they don't. And that adds to his pain. And the pain that most grips him is not the pain of the body, but the pain and agony and terror of soul, we read. And then he goes a little further in the garden and he falls Not on his knees, but on his face. And he prays, Hebrews says, he prayed with loud cries and tears. It's loud in that garden. Sometimes we think that our songs of Christ's suffering have to be sung in hush. But if you look at Psalm 22, if you look at Jesus' cries on the cross, if you look at Hebrews, He is yelling. He is in such deep agony of terror. He is yelling. And if sometimes that's how you handle your agony and distress, you're not alone. People might look in horror and say, "How could?" It's okay. It's okay. With loud cries and tears, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup that so terrifies him? It's squeezing the life out of his soul. So much we read in the book of Luke that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a name to that condition that in times of extreme fright and anguish, That's what your sweat becomes like. What is it that tortures his mind and soul so that it's nearly killing him already at that point before he's on the cross? It's the cup. Let this cup pass from me if it's your will. It's the cup. Well, what's in the cup? It's a cup of suffering, but what's the suffering about? He's suffering under the wrath of God. It's a cup filled with the suffering of God's wrath. In rejection, listen to three verses from the Bible that speak of the cup that way. Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Remember that word dregs, it's coming up again. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering, the dregs. When I'm in the Ukraine, they drink their coffee a little differently than I'm used to. You put the perk grains in the bottom and then you pour in the boiling water And it all stirs to the top, and you let it settle slowly to the bottom. And then you drink your coffee, but make sure there's about this much left. Otherwise, you'll be drinking the dregs, the little pieces of grain. And normally, people don't like that stuff. But Jesus has to drink it to the bottom. He has to drink out all the way, including the grains laying the bottom the cup of God's wrath. In Revelation 14, verse 10, the wicked will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. That's the cup. The sun is staggering under the cup, the terrible cup of God's rejection and wrath. And he's calling him to drink all of it. Because Jesus has become sin. And as sin, he's become the object of God's eternal wrath. And the weight of his wrath is pressing down on the Son of God like the olive press. It's squeezing the life out of olives in Gethsemane. Michael Horton puts it this way. The reason Jesus shuddered at the cross or at the thought of crucifixion had less to do with the physical torture involved and cannot imagine that physical torture. And more to do with the torture of his soul. Here, the fear of becoming everything he hated. The fear of becoming everything he hated in his most deepest being. He would become sin for us. What does that mean? Well, he who is the truth and hates the lies, he would become a liar for us. He whose heart and eyes are pure, who would never ever look at a woman lustfully, would become a promiscuous adulterer for us. He hung there on the cross with all the crimes nailed to him of those he saved. There he is, the child molester, Jesus, the child molester in name, not in fact, not in deed. There he is, the thief, the porn addict, the abuser, the murderer, the gossiper, the slanderer, the harsh tyrant. All that he hates, he would become. All that he hates, he would become. And then the father would look at him and say, I can't stand this. Because the Bible says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin. He would turn his face away. His soul staggered, shuddered, was terrified, scared to death of that. God has become in the flesh the very thing he hates. And so Jesus became the ugliest, vilest, most horrendous, despicable thing of shame. And at last, God turned his face away from the son he loved, even as he loved him. And he abandoned him. He abandoned him and left him all alone. And that's hell. The presence of his wrath, the absence of his kindness and goodness. No common grace left. And that's when he descended into the lowest pit of hell. And he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? John Calvin writes, he had no no horror at death, therefore, simply as a passage out of the world. So his horror at death wasn't simply the fact of dying, but he was horrified because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because of our sins, the load of which was laid upon him pressed him down with their enormous weight. There's no reason to wonder, therefore, if the dreadful abyss of destruction tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. And there he drank the cup of suffering, of rejection, of wrath to its last drop. Sinclair Ferguson writes, the cross is the one place on this earth in history where the 23rd Psalm ceased to work. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. God refused to be with his son. It's the one place on this earth in history where the twenty-third Psalm ceased to work. The cross is the one place on earth in history where the ironic blessing ceased to work. The Lord turned his face toward you and give you peace. No the Lord turn his face against you even though you're the righteous one. The Lord turn his face against you and give you wrath. And so the Lord Jesus walked into this territory where the 23rd Psalm didn't function and where the ironic blessing didn't function. And why? It ceased to work for him so that it might always work for us. Brothers and sisters, please remember that. It ceased to work for him so that it might always work for us. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may know that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have nothing to be afraid of. Oh, we fear, but we can give that all to him because his rod... Beats away, protects us from the enemies. His staff that leads us and guides us will be with us. It will comfort me. And he'll set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It'll anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. My life is full. Because he drank the cup empty. My cup is full of blessing. And the ironic blessing will always work for you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And yes, we do struggle with sin. Lusts, impatience, discontentment. We want to be gentle and then suddenly we're harsh. And we're in that spot where we realize, man, I'm a despicable thing. We get frustrated by that. But we know because he stood in that spot for us. It's gone. And that's what we see thirdly. That's the profound comfort that we have in the descent of our Savior into hell in times of crisis and confusion. Our lives can feel so God-forsaken. And we can walk into that territory of darkness where we feel all alone and God would not want to look on me. Or God for some reason has turned his back on me. But at the cross, Jesus assures me, the 23rd Psalm always works for me, and the ironic blessing always works for me, and his presence is always with me. And I am safe and sound, and God is with me, and he will never leave me nor forsake me. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that he descended into hell He was forsaken for you. That he became the thing that he hates in you. The thing that you hate in you. He became that. And so he took the eternal torments from you. He took the wrath from you, the hatred from you, the abandonment from you. It's gone. And that terror of soul is gone. And he redeemed your sorrows. You know, some in the early church were afraid to affirm the full humanity of Christ. That was the error of docetism. That's too gross a thing for God to take on flesh and have sorrows and agony and weep and cry and fear and be tormented. Those things aren't worthy of, of God. God. In the midst of that era of docetism, the church father Ambrose, the one under whose ministry St. Augustine was converted, the church father Ambrose said, I don't need to make any excuses for Jesus' sorrows. In fact, there's no instance, he says, where I admire Jesus' kindness and majesty more than when he took on my feelings of grief and sorrow and anguish upon himself and made them his own. He had no cause for grief for himself, but he grieved for me. And he laid aside the delights of the eternal Godhead and experienced the affliction of my weakness. I boldly call it sorrow, what Jesus went through. I boldly call it sorrow because I preach the cross. He took upon him not the appearance, but the reality of my flesh and suffering. And rather than shut out my sorrow and pain, he experienced grief that he might overcome my sorrow. He descended into hell, a deep, dark, disastrous, sorrowful place. And he didn't stoically keep a straight face and rise above it all and say, can't hurt me. Didn't do that. He cried, he shouted, he prayed, he pleaded, and there was no answer from heaven. Listen again, Psalm 22, we read the first verse, but I want to keep reading. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus adds, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry. I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, and I have no rest. And later on, the psalm says, Jesus emotionally fell apart. He became unraveled. He was crushed crumbled on the severity of God's wrath. His soul became unraveled and melted into a puddle of shame-filled agony. Listen to Psalm 22 again. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And he did this for his people. No matter how much sorrow you have, beloved. It's not the sorrow Jesus had. Hell's sorrow. No. He took that from you. And now the sorrow believers have is the groaning of waiting for the day of redemption to come. To reach the finish line. That's the new sorrow. The redeemed sorrow. And sorrow that God hears and answers, as Peter says. It's suffering for your Savior." so you may enter his glory. You're never alone. You're never out of God's reach like Jesus was on the cross. Never. No matter how life feels right now, you need to know and you see it by Jesus suffering, being crucified, dying as somebody who has descended into hell. No matter how life feels, He will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. You're never alone. Your sufferings aren't hell. They're your pathway to glory. It's like He's transformed your death. It's still an ending, but He's transformed your death. So the punishment is out of it. Now it's a doorway to heaven. Same with our sorrows and our anguish and our feeling of being forsaken. There's no hell in it at all. It's gone. It was put on Jesus. He drank it to the last dregs, the bitter dregs. Closing quote, somebody writes, is there really a hell? If you truly study the cross of Jesus Christ, you will know the answer. But that is not all. If you look in faith, you will also know that Jesus will never let you experience that horror of hell. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are hell-deserving sinners. And apart from Christ, that's, that's where we'll spend eternity. But what great love that you should make him our flesh and blood to enter that deep, region of darkness and despair and disaster and destruction, body and soul for us, so that what opens up before us in all of life's troubles and sorrows and joys is heaven itself. Whatever's on that road, that's where the road is going. Give us faith then to rest in our Savior's sorrows, sufferings, in hellish anguish and terror of soul. We rest in You, Lord Jesus. We trust You to redeem us from the depths of hell. Amen.